Success. What does it mean? How do you know when you've achieved it? And does meeting our goals actually make us happy? I'm fantasy and romance author Leslie Penelope, and these are the questions that I think are vital to both our careers and our lives. We're all striving for something. Some authors have their hearts set on reaching the bestsellers lists, becoming full-time authors, receiving awards from peers or readers, becoming a household name, or maybe even having their books turned into TV shows or movies. But what about when those happen? What's next? Imagining Success is an interview series where I talk to authors who have achieved career milestones that others only dream about and ask them how they got there and where they go from here. This episode is brought to you by the Ink and Magic podcast, where best-selling authors Inez Johnson and yours truly read and discuss the writing craft, world-building, and romance of paranormal and fantasy novels. Inez and I are best friends and former college roommates, and we both love story. We're rereading the iconic paranormal romance books in Nalini Singh's Psy Changeling series, breaking them down and discussing why they're so beloved. We also have episodes on craft and are sometimes joined by special guests to talk about writing. If you need a little literary magic in your life, check out the Ink and Magic podcast wherever you're listening to this. My first interview is with Mary Robinette Kowal. Mary Robinette has received the top awards in science fiction and fantasy, including the Astounding Award for Best New Writer, Locus, Nebula, four Hugo Awards. Her books include The Spare Man, The Glamorous Histories series, Ghost Talkers, and The Lady Astronaut Universe. She's also the former president of SIFWA, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association, and these are only a few of her many accomplishments. I was honored to be able to talk to Mary Robinette. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much, Mary Robinette, for agreeing to be here. Um, you're my first actual interview in many years, so I am very grateful. Happy to be here. It's great to see you again. It is really good to see you too. And um, yeah, so this interview series is really focused on the idea of success. And it's really just a chance for me to talk to people at various stages of the writing career who have been around and who have achieved, you know, varying levels of success about their relationship with it, because it's something I think about a lot. And when I talk to newer writers, it is something that I think that helps if you actually do consider when you want to do this writing thing, because publishing is so difficult. Yes. So the first thing I want to ask you is why did you start writing in the first place? Oh, well, golly. Um, that's a good question. So there's, and there's a couple of different ways we can define start writing, you know? Um, the first thing that I remember writing, I'm like first grade and I wrote a story for my mom as a, a Mother's Day present. Um, the, the, the writing and submitting though is a totally different thing. Like I wrote through high school, I was writing a novel, uh, into college and then beyond. Um, which will never be published. Um, but the, the decision to start sending things out into the world happened, um, honestly, after I, I had a, a severe puppet injury. Um, I, I had spent, um, I had a 20 plus year career in puppetry and the, the point of that this happens, I'm 15 years into the career and, um, had a just a horrible injury, was out of performance for about two years, uh, couldn't couldn't build things uh, because I, I'm right hand dominant and I um, was in a cast for about a year and uh, started, I, I realized what in hindsight that I had been getting all of my creative jollies from the puppetry 
and um and then came back to writing and remembered that it was something that I loved um so it was you know it was to fill a creative void uh when I came back to it but the the thing that draws me to it the thing that keeps me going and it is the same thing that pulled me into puppetry it's um it's about a connection with audience uh the you know the writing is just a way to put down daydreams and then transmit those daydreams to someone else so so for me the the writing is um it it is about wanting that connection it's about there's this thing in my head and i i want you to share it mhm yeah, that's fascinating. I've actually been talking to several writers who have backgrounds in performing arts, whether it's um, one is an opera singer, one was a playwright, things that are very audience facing. And mm -hmm. I feel like writers who have that background, whether it's in acting or something with a live audience there in the room with you, do have a very different perspective and maybe maybe different motivations for how they approach the writing. Do you think that that experience in having a live audience and that feedback from being a puppeteer has, um, you know, impacted your writing. Uh, it definitely has. I hadn't thought about it as as being an inherently different motivation, but I suspect you're right um, because I know a lot of people who write just for the pleasure of writing. And while I enjoy it, it is for me about about that connection. I'm like I'm always thinking about how is this going to land, mm. um, how is this going to play. Mm -hmm. Um, so one of the things that you're, you're taught, at least in the, the way I was trained was that when you are creating a show, you're thinking about a couple of different things. There's the, uh, size of the theater, the length of the show, um, your budget, your literal budget, uh, but, but also the audience, because if you do Little Red Riding Hood for, um, for elementary school kids, that's a different show than if you do it for high school kids, a different show yet if you do it for adults. You know, Into the Woods, Little Red Riding Hood, very different. You would not do that for kindergartners. Right. Yeah. Like, so when you decided to start publishing, what was your initial goal? Was it just to have people interact with your work or did you have specific goals that you set when you were, when you were querying or however you began? Money. Okay. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> um, uh, so the uh, the thing about having come out of the arts, my, my mom was an arts administrator. And, and the thing about specifically being a puppeteer is that um, I was doing puppetry as a hobby. It was something I loved. And then a professional puppeteer came to see the show and was like, and I was like, people give you money to do this? <laughs> and basically changed career choices on the spot. So by the time I was writing and thinking about it seriously, I was like, you can clearly monetize anything. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a good form of external validation. And also I was a freelancer. So I was always trying to diversify my income stream. So some of it was, boy, it would be cool to be published. Um, it would be nice to have it on a shelf. Uh, it would, But a lot of it was the um the the paths i took were specifically um how do you make a living from this how do you make mm -hmm. how do you make money from this i had um i had uh because i was an art major i had 
printed copies and bound copies. And like I had done that and given them to people, mm-hmm. but the, I'm going to, I'm going to submit it for publication was how do I get people to give me money for this thing that I love to do? Right. Yeah. And did, that was similar to your goal when you became more a professional puppeteer as mm-hmm. well. Right. Yeah. So those were aligned. So did you have milestones? Did you think about awards at all? Mm -mm, I didn't think about awards. Uh, Those seemed impossible. (laughs) Um, The milestones initially were just, I would like to get this, was just, uh, will someone give me money and print this? I Mm -hmm. I just, I wanted physical copies. Right. Um, Physical copies are less important now, but I still get way more... I say less important. I get more excited when I get a physical copy um, than than just seeing it out in the world. I'm still old school that way, I think. (laughs) Do you do you experience imposter syndrome with your writing? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, The the places it triggers is different now than when I started. Uh, the the way I think about it, and I'm, I'm significantly calmer when I feel the imposter syndrome hit um, than when I started. But the, the way I think about it is that if you think about playing a video game, that at some point in the game, you level up and you get, you know, loading screens, you get beautiful graphics, you get, you know, it's like, here's all of your new gear. And then you're very excited about the new monsters that you get to face. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that imposter syndrome is just a really crappy UI for leveling up. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, because typically what happens is you're in a situation that you feel unprepared for, but the people outside know that you're prepared. That's why they've invited you. Uh, that's why you have the opportunity. That's why the the something has occurred that has changed your circumstances. All you know is that there's new monsters in front of you and you don't recognize that you have the gear. So now when imposter syndrome happens, I try to tell myself, you're leveling up. This is leveling up. Be calm. Be very calm. Um, the... The writing happens, it happens less at this point from writing. Um, it is more frequent when I am, um, let me rephrase that, actually. Uh, it, it doesn't happen as much in community. When I am outside of community um, and brought in, like if I, if I go to, uh, one of the things that get that happens to me now is that someone will bring me in as a futurist, <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> and I go in and I'm the only science fiction writer there, okay. um, and the only writer. And then I'm like, "Yeah, but none of you have heard of my books, except <laughs> the people who invited me here." You right. know, like, do I deserve to be here? Kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that that's about the only t- that or that's the the most recent one that i can remember that triggered it where i was like why am i here because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's somewhat outside of the writing sphere basically yeah right yeah and so inside the writing sphere i've had time to adjust to the way the landscape has changed mm-hmm. so it it's less it, it it happens less often right yeah do you if someone calls you a successful author what does that make you feel like inside? Um, that makes me, um, that always makes, it makes me feel like a, a Scooby-Doo. Like, <laughs> like, 
Like, how are we, how are you defining successful? Because it's, you know, by any measure, I am successful. Like I am selling things regularly. I have some shiny awards. Um, You know, I have multiple books out, but also there's the, the, uh, the thing about the imposter syndrome is it's like, yeah, but you know, I've never hit the New York times bestseller list. Right. (laughs) I'm like, am I successful? Right. Yeah. And, and, and we know the list has its own issues and it's right. not. Yeah. Right. It's like, this, why is that? Why is that the marker? Right. Um, and if you had, you probably would feel the same way. Like, yeah. I if I had. Before, right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> only well, and I have friends who hit the New York Times list on a regular basis and they're like, yeah, but, you know, I've never won a Hugo Award. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but. <laughs> <laughs> it is all relative, right? Yeah. Completely. And other people who will never do either, but are regularly pulling in way more money than I am because they've gone the indie route. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all different paths to it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, how do you measure success? Exactly. So, Do you bother to try at this point? Or is it just a thing that you know never really materializes? Um, I always think that it's good to have something to reach for. Like I like being pushed. Mm -hmm. And if I don't have an external force pushing me, then I will try to create one. Like I I love the editor-author relationship because a a good editor will push you. Mm -hmm. Um, I like taking classes because they'll push me. Uh, For the, the metrics of success, I don't try to... Like the the awards, I don't try to, I'm like, I'm going to write an, an award when, like, I don't try to do that. Um, the the pieces that are not the writing part of my career, those I am attempting to manipulate because I would like to hit the New York Times bestseller list because among other things, there's some financial rewards. Like that's, that's, that, that means that there's probably some money <laughs> and as aforementioned, I am I am mercenary in my creativity, and so it's still a big goal of yours. Is it like trying to reach for like bigger advances each time, or just yeah, yeah that whole thing? Yeah, and and those are uh, those are external validation, but also the the one of the and I should have said this earlier. One of the things that I've always been trying to do is to turn down the gigs I don't want to do, mm. like. Um, you know, the, the easiest example of this is I'm also an audiobook narrator. Um, there are books that I uh, used a pseudonym for because um, I did not want them associated with my brand, not the quality of the writing, but because they were, um, it was content that I, I was like, oof, um, like, uh, I, you know, like a rapey book. I just, you know, I don't, I don't want to record those, but mm-hmm. there have been points in my life where I needed that paycheck and I couldn't say no to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not at that point now. So now I get a book and it's like, mm, no, uh-uh, and I will turn it down. Um, but I want to be able to do that with everything in my life. Um, and I feel like everybody should be able to turn down the things they don't want to do. Right. Because that leaves more space for the things you do want to do. So the external validation of New York Times bestselling author means that you know, if I want to say, hey, I want to take three years to write a book, mm-hmm. that I can take three years to write a book and people will be like, yes, oh, the next Kowal book is coming out. <laughs> you know, 
talking to someone who uh, who took ten years in in literary mainstream, and I'm like, I can't like having that in science fiction and fantasy, right? Unless you hit that out of the gate with your debut novel or you've had a really long successful series you can't you can't take 10 years between books right yeah and some people believe they only have a book one two books in them mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel like i i feel like i have way more books that i have time in my life to write same people are coming at it yeah from from different perspectives and maybe that's genre like i don't know of too many sff authors who say i just have one book in me yeah you hear that with literary more yeah. I mean, Flowers for Algernon, I think, is the only one he wrote. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's super rare. Uh, most of the time we are just... And maybe it's because our, our genre is so built on the what if mm. that every time you turn around, there's another, there's another what if question. Right. Life is just throwing them at you all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think about writing with authenticity and what that means to you? Um, I didn't for a long time, um, in part because um, there's a couple of reasons. One is because, you know, as a as a white writer, it, it had been so much of the fiction that I grew up with was mainstream, like the the stuff. I mean, it was all it was all reflections of me, except as a dude. Um so, so I didn't have to think about that. Um, it wasn't it wasn't something that I needed to interrogate at all. And um, and I have been thinking about it more and more um, in terms of um, the more of myself that I put into the book, the more universal the book seems to be. So uh, the the example is um, Calculating Stars. That was a replacement book uh, for a book that was not authentic to me, I would say. And um, and I wrote it very fast. And so I put a lot of things on easy setting. Um, you know, Elma, Elma's relationship with her mother is very much mine. Um, the way her, her internal self-talk uh, is a lot of me. She's from the South. Um, it, there are things that are very different. She is Jewish. I'm not. She's a mathematician. I'm very, very much not. Um, but the relationship with her husband, the relationship to art, all uh, math as art, all of those things were reflections of me. Um, and uh, she has anxiety. I have depression. But her journey in deciding to get to, to seek help and get medication is basically mine with light the lightest sanding of serial numbers and the number of people who have recognized themselves in different pieces of that Mm -hmm. um have made me start thinking a lot more about uh about putting myself in um and and doing that in a much more conscious way than uh, than than the way the author's opinions and worldview reflects unconsciously in a book, um, and some of that was needing to write that book very quickly, and some of it was um, there's a comedian Desiree Burke who uh, came on one of the writing excuses cruises as an instructor and did a, a workshop on stand up comedy, but but putting yourself using using your own history 
um, for narrative. And that was really eye-opening. And she was the one who said that she thought that the more, the more specifically you a story was, the more universal it was. And that was, um, uh, she made a very compelling argument, and and it it is something that I am I'm exploring with my own work. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to be like the I just wrote something that was all alien all the time, um, but I, I'm still the um, I guess the um, emotional mm-hmm. truth and and it is something that I'm I'm much more um, exploring much more consciously now. Yeah. Did that book feel differently to write than the ones where you're more concerned with audience? I think so. Um, This is a yes and a no. Um, Mm -hmm. I wrote that one really fast. And um, the thing that I have been thinking about with this this new exploration is chasing the emotion of the book that I'm writing rather than the plot structure. Okay. But when I think about writing for audience, um, I I think about an audience of one specific person, like my ideal reader. This person represents the the person that I absolutely want to read it. Um, I will also think about um, audiences that I want to make sure feel invited into the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, but the personality that I'm writing for is usually one specific person. Is it you, or do you create an audience surrogate? I have a specific. I have a, a first reader. Okay. Um, oh, you're literally writing for a real human being. <laughs> I'm writing for a real human being. Um, uh, I have I have done things where I've done an audience surrogate, but I have um, I found a, a first reader who whose tastes overlap mine, um, but also has enough of a different lived experience that uh, that w- I find that when I write books going, is this going to make Alessandra really mad in exactly the right way? Excellent. <laughs> that is really great to have an actual person because I think a lot of us, well, like in marketing, you're taught to create yeah. new personas and things like that. Yeah. And sometimes writers will try to do that. Um, and there is a tension between writing with the audience in mind and writing for yourself. Yeah. And when we're in commercial fiction and, you know, genre fiction, we, you know, like you said, you do have to think about the audience. We're writing for other people, but that can get in your head. And it so, can. How do yeah, you stop ab- that? Yeah. Um, oh, my goodness. No, I, I'm like, yeah, it totally can get in your head. So th- uh, this is, again, where the puppetry comes in really handy. They say uh, that to to establish a puppet theater, it takes five to 10 years of doing name works before you can do something original. And uh, in children's theater, that's like Snow White, Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty. Like if it's if it was Brothers Grimm or an old dead white guy, you can totally do it. Um, but what we found was that it's absolutely possible to tell this story and then also tell the story that you want to tell. So the one of the we we did a production of Pinocchio which is still one of the the pieces that I am most proud of that we we've done. And Pinocchio's been told like 50 bajillion times, right? So the original Pinocchio in many ways is Pinocchio searching for his mother. 
or searching, so trying to connect to his father, excuse me, you know, the Geppetto Pinocchio relationship. And so what we did was we, uh, and this is my writing, I have a creative partner in the puppet theater, Jody Eichelberger. Um, and so what Jody did was he wrote a play about Pinocchio as a young man remembering his puppethood. And then it was the search for his mother. So we went through and we made a list of all the things that you needed to see in order to walk out of the theater and feel like I saw Pinocchio. Mm -hmm. You know, you needed to see the fox and the cat. You needed to see Pinocchio's nose grow. You needed to see the talking cricket. You needed to see the being swallowed by the whale. And then the design that I did for that was that it was all in uh, Geppetto and Son's toy shop. And, um, and the, that it was a mix of puppets that Pinocchio had created and found objects. So the giant shark was, uh, giant two-handled saws. Um, and, and, you know, Pinocchio had never made, uh, a, um, puppet of his father. So his father was represented by an axe because he was a wood, wood carver. Um, and so when I come back to to writing, it's like I can do something. I can I you know like if I'm um, I don't have to do this often, but if I do have to write to market, like um, themed anthology or something like that, I can be like, okay, what are the beats that I need to hit for you to feel satisfied that you saw the thing that you came into the, to the room to see, and what is the story I want to tell? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that is a thing that people often forget when they're working is that you can always tell the story that you want to tell within the framework of another story. It's just how much are you surfacing it mm -hmm. and um, how much, you know, how much priority do you give to, to, to something else? But the, I guess when I'm writing, it's, uh, you know, I'm thinking about what is the question that I'm interested in. You want to see a story about going into space? Fantastic. That's great. I'm going to tell you a story about going into space. But also, how do you do that when you're thinking about living with anxiety? Right. That's the the, the specificity that makes mm -hmm. the connection with everyone. And yeah. yeah, we talk about writing it the same but different. People want to see mm -hmm. genre fiction, the same thing in different ways and new and unique ways. And that was a really good example of that. Like, how can you t do the Pinocchio? but also imbibe it with the newness and people are doing lots of mashups these days and remixing things. And I think that's another reason why those types of stories are, are so popular. You can drill it down to the essence of why do we like Cinderella and mm -hmm. then change it, flip it, give it to us in a different way that still hits all of those points that we love. Yeah. Well, like when you, when you did uh, the monsters we defy, like there's a bunch of very recon recognizable common tropes. Mm -hmm. um, and you're dealing with an alternate history, but you're also telling a story that is mixing things in ways that they don't normally get mixed and telling a story that is very specific. It felt really specific. Um, just in case you didn't know, I really like that book. So much. <laughs> and it felt, it was specific writing. And I was like, I want to make it Washington DC in 1925. Yeah. And then it's also fantasy, but like, mm -hmm. as as real as I can make it. Yeah. So I'm glad that comes through. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so grounded. I'm like, oh yeah, no, this absolutely happened. 
And I, and I love it when people say, oh, I was researching all these things. I was trying to see if that was real. And I'm like, great. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, yeah. that's fun to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I did the same thing. I was like, going to, I was like, that seems, that seems very real. I'm going to, and and then I was surprised by which ones, uh, I can't remember now, but I remember being surprised by which ones were like, oh no, that was a hundred percent real. And which ones were like, good job making that up. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> so as you look forward in terms of things you want to achieve, um, how, when you achieve things, how do you set the next goal? Like what's, how do you figure out what's next? Because I find that moving the goalpost is necessary, but also feels yeah. kind of bad. Like I'm not being grateful enough once I've done all these things that people who are still like, oh, I still want to write my first book, look at and think are amazing. And you're like, oh yeah, I did that. Everybody does that. And balancing the gratitude with the things you still want to achieve. Yeah. Um, there's a, a woman named Laura Levine. Her name is not spelled the way you think it's going to be, um, but she's a she's a happiness coach, which sounds very woo. And um, she has this idea of, of form versus essence. And essence is about something, how something makes you uh, feel. And form is something that you can touch or buy. It's more tangible. And for me... Um, I, I had been thinking, uh, this had been in my brain for a long time before her, but she gave me the words to talk about it. Um, the, the thing that happens a lot is that people will get fixated on a form because it gave them a feeling. And they will continue chasing that form long after it's useful to them. And so for me, when I'm looking for the essence, for, for the, the new goalpost, I always go back to the essence. I'm like, what is going to feed this? Mm-hmm. Um, and because that's the thing that makes me happy. Um, so, you know, one of the, the essences for me is connection. Um, the, the, she, she thinks that there's five basic things, um, or that everybody has five to seven essences that kind of drive you. And so for me, they are uh, connection, sharing, discovery, craftsmanship, and uh, restful. And so if I'm, you know, when I'm thinking about a new goalpost, I'm thinking about how does this feed this? How is this generated from these essences what is the connection so while i talk about yeah i would really like to hit the new york times bestseller list that is a very external marker the essence that that's actually feeding is that uh that means my craftsmanship was probably probably good um sharing it means that you know i got a book out and connection i got a book out in front of a lot of different people restful it means that i'm not having to struggle for money quite so much uh, theoretically, uh, discovery doesn't feed at all, um, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have to feed everything, but anything that doesn't feed any of those is a goal that I probably don't actually want. It's something that um, looks shiny because it feeds someone else's happiness. Mm-hmm. And maybe it has to feed more than one because there's yeah. a lot of things you could do for money that still are not going to be feeding exactly. anything else. Yeah, exactly. That's a really cool way to think about that. Yeah. 
it has helped my brain. I've been using that since um, 2019. Ah, no, no, never mind. I've been using that since January of 2020. <laughs> right before <laughs> everything changed. Yes. <laughs> um, last question is, is writing still hard or was it ever hard? Uh, yes, it's still hard. And yes, it's always been hard. Um, and no, it's not hard. And no, it's never been hard. Um, the, the place where the difficulty lives is different every time I sit down to write. Um, some days it is the act of sitting down to write. Some days it is the act of not being able to sit down to write. Um, some days the character is not coming. Some days I'm like, I don't know where this is. Some days it's the plot. Um, some days it is all of the writing was great. And then I sit down to revise it. I'm like, who wrote this? Um, and every time I learn something new, writing becomes hard again because I'm thinking about it consciously. But when I internalize that thing, writing becomes easier because now I have a new tool that I can use. Um, and then I realize that there's some other gap. So it's always, it's always in flux. It is always easier than it was and harder than it was. Mm, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I totally feel that. And also you, you have evidence that you've done it before. Mm -hmm. No, it's possible as opposed to the first time you're like, can I even do right. it? But it's still not as easy as you think it should be, or maybe it shouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know it. The, uh, yeah, I was, I, uh, I keep going back to puppets, but I just remember this, uh, this outtake of Grover and he flubs a line terribly and Frank Oz like flops Grover down. He's, and, and so he's like lying face down and he lifts his head and he's like, I used to be so good at this. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I get that. I get that. It's like, I'm Grover. I, I've never related to you more than, than I do right now. Um, mm -hmm. I'll sit down to write something. I'm like, I used, I used to know how to do this. What, what is yeah. even what happened? What are words? I don't, I don't have any. any <laughs> like, I remember that I used to be able to control my length really specifically. Mm. And, um, and then the last couple of books, I'm like, why are these books so long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'm trying to write short and or last time, oddly enough, this last book I just finished, uh, I was trying to write it at 75,000 words. I'm like, why is it 65? That's never a problem yeah. for me usually. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I uh I just I've been um I, I just wrote a short story and they wanted it to be about five thousand three hundred words. I'm like, why is this a two thousand word story? <laughs> said all I had to say, right? <laughs> I guess so. It's like, I know how to fix it, but, but also, yeah, I used to know how to do this on purpose. I used to be so good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Mary Rabinette, for your time. Uh, yeah. I really appreciate your answers and yeah, just thoughts on success, which I think are, are so helpful as we all struggle with this and, you know, the industry is changing so much. And I think we have to be nimble and change all sides of the industry. Self-publishing is changing. Traditional publishing yeah. is changing. So I, what I like to tell people is like, you know, 
kind of know your why, but like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Like coming back to that helps yeah, when everything gets now. hard. Yeah. And that feeling yeah. when you're like, I used to be so good at this, but why am I still doing this? Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you know that, you can come back to it, I think. Yes. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And also I just want to say one of the, the things about the industry changing so much. Um, when I came into the field, people were like, Oh, the industry is changing so much. These, these new fangled electronic magazines are, are going to destroy publishing. Right. And it did not. It did not. So chances are AI will not destroy us. No, we, the industry is always on the verge of being destroyed and also way more robust than people think it is. Thanks again for being here um, and for being one of my new imaginary friends. <laughs> I'm happy to be one of your imaginary friends. Seeing how other authors approach this topic has been really eye-opening for me. One of my biggest takeaways from talking to Mary Robinette was how she uses the idea of essences to determine her goals. I really like the idea of having my criteria for decision-making be based on the things that drive me, my core values. So when some opportunity arises or the ever-present urge to compare myself to others comes over me, or I'm feeling FOMO or like I have to catch up in this ongoing race towards success— I can ground myself by evaluating which one of my essences does this thing feed? If you're interested in learning more about Mary Robinette Coel and reading her work, I have links in the show notes. You can always sign up for the Footnotes newsletter, which includes the show notes for every episode, as well as weekly-ish inspiration, strategies, and ideas to help you grow as a writer. And that's at myimaginaryfriends.net slash footnotes. When you sign up, you can choose to become an imaginary best friend for a few dollars a month and get access to premium posts, quarterly workshops, as well as discounts on my courses and coaching. Next up in the interview series, I speak to a beloved, legendary, and extremely generous author. Ms. Beverly Jenkins. If you don't want to miss that, make sure you're subscribed. And until the next time, keep imagining.